Okay, our scripture comes from the ninth chapter of Luke, and it is a pivotal, it is a pivot in the structure of the narrative of Jesus' life, of where he's going and what he's doing, because there's a moment in which his direction changes. And he becomes very resolute, and the rest of Luke is the carrying out of this new direction. Here it is, Luke chapter 9, 51 to 62. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, that's sort of code language that he's coming toward the end of his ministry, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of Samaritans, to make ready for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? There's a response. But he turned and rebuked them, the two disciples. Then they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, somebody just yelled out to him as his little parade walked by, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But that person said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. These are troublesome words. It's hard to read into this story, the emotional content of what's going on, of what's happening with Jesus, who has set his face, which that's a particular phrase in the New Testament, set his face to go to Jerusalem and and for all that would lie there. The Bible is really interesting to read in terms of what the poets and the prophets and the philosophers have all long described as our unified self. You know what I'm talking about. It's the complementary terms of mind and body and soul, all three. And are they all one and the same person, or are they different, distinct pieces of us, fragments of us, we might say? And the Apostle Paul metaphorically described us this way. This priceless treasure we hold in a common earthenware jar. Of course, he's thinking metaphorically. This is an amazing uh, text. I think about this fairly often, being a pastor, of being really, you know, I'm just who I am. I've got a body, I've got a mind, I've got emotions, I've got all of that. And they're very just ordinary things. And this treasure has been placed inside of me and you in earthenware jars, clay pots, it says in another text. The self, our minds, our souls are are part of our physical bodies. Are they separate entities? Can you parse them out? Or are are they some mystical unity of self? 
That's a great question. And the poets and the prophets and the philosophers of each uh, added their say about that. I can see from this vantage point, I can see the tension between body and soul every Sunday. You know I can see you, don't you? Well, except the back rows where it's a little cloudy back there. I don't see them too well. Uh, I had a guy in my church in Kansas City who fell asleep during a sermon, and he started snoring. It was beautiful. It wasn't very subtle. I was preaching along, and all of a sudden I heard this, you know, this snore going on. And his wife was up here in the choir loft, and she couldn't get to him. The struggle between the soul and the body is not just waged in our sleepy eyes in church. For some of you, you don't rest enough. And you come in here and you sort of hunker down and you get comfortable and you're actually resting in a way that you have not rested enough during the week so church fulfills a function for you. Are you fans of Lyle Lovett? I am on occasion. He's a singer and a songwriter, and he sang about the soul-body conflict in a song that he calls Church. When a struggle is waged between a preacher and his need to preach long and hard over against the hunger of the choir, and the choir's up in the balcony in this particular church, and they were waging their own insurrection at, as the noon hour drew nigh. I mentioned I don't have a watch on, so I don't know if, if it's 9.45 or 10 or 10.30, but you do. I know you keep an eye on things. Here's what he's saying. I went to church last Sunday so I could sing and pray, but something quite unusual happened on that day. Now, church, it started right on time, just like it does, without a doubt, and everything was all fine, except when it came time to let us out. You know the preacher, he kept preaching. He told us, I have one more thing to say, children, before you think of leaving. You better think about the judgment day. Now, everyone got nervous because everyone was hungry, too. And everyone was wondering what the next thing that he would do, and the preacher he kept preaching. He said, now, I'll remind you, if I may, you all better pay attention or I might decide to preach all day. And now everyone was getting so hungry that the old ones started feeling ill and the weak ones started passing out and the young ones could not sit still. And the preacher's voice rose higher and higher, so I snuck up to the balcony and I crept into the choir and I begged them, brothers and sisters, help me please. Won't, when I give you a signal, when I raise my hand, won't you please join with me together and praise the Lord? And the preacher, he kept preaching. Long is the struggle, hard the fight, and I prayed, Father, please forgive me. And then I stood up with, and with all my might, I sang to the Lord, let praises be. It's time for dinner. Now let's go eat. We've got some beans and some good cornbread, and I listened to what the preacher said. Now it's up to, now it's the, to the Lord, let praises be. It's time for dinner. Now let's go eat. That was the refrain that kept re recurring. 
As we watched in disbelief, these were the words he spoke. He said, now mama's in the kitchen and she's been there all day and I know she's cooking something good. So let's bow our heads and pray. And the moral of the story, children, it it is plain but true. God knows if a preacher preaches long enough, even he'll get hungry too. That's true. There are stories in the Bible of tough circumstances. There are many stories about difficult times, both ordinary and extraordinary. Some are just common everyday things that happen. The stories are linked by the demands of our bodies for nourishment, health, and purpose. A prophet of God walks on the earth just like the rest of us, and the demands of life are the same for them as for anyone. In 1 Kings 17, this is where we match up a New Testament story with an Old Testament story because they walk hand in hand together. Elijah was hungry and his need for food forced him to go up to Sidon where a widow woman was living with her son. The providence of God had paved the way for him. This is the quote from the Bible. The Lord had commanded the woman to feed him. Somehow they found each other on this road of adventure that he was on. So he went there and announced to her that she should feed him. What Elijah did not seem to notice was that the woman and her son were starving. Pretty amazing. He goes to a house where they really have very little food. Nevertheless, she took what she had and made the prophet a meal that depleted their food supplies. She laid it all out on the table for him. And when Elijah learned of her plight, he comforted her with the words we remember best from Jesus in these moments of anxiety, have no fear. That's a hard message to deliver on occasion. Don't worry so much. There's a gentle rhythm to God's grace, we know. Sometimes we're the recipients of that grace, and other times God puts us in a position to offer grace, like a cup of cool water on a hot day. There's an old saying, I don't know where it has come from, but I've heard it most of my life, grace given, grace received. This rhythm in life in which God gives grace, and then the grace is also received the rhythms of life and how God partners with us. Even in crisis moments, this cycle of grace is a possibility. Think of grace as an intangible expression of God's great and free goodness, spilling over in every moment and in every circumstance if one will open up their eyes to experience it. The grace of God is at work right now. The grace of God is at work in your life no matter what. In the feeding of the 5,000, another circumstance, a situation unusually like this one comes along, and Jesus gives response to the practicality of the overrunning of demand by supply. And so we're tempted to ask, what good will my gift do in light of this? The disciples were all anxious and they came to Jesus and said, all these people are here. They're hot and they're tired and they're hungry. And what did Jesus say to them? You feed them. 
They had come to Jesus to fix the problem. And he says, you fix the problem. Jesus must have known this Elijah story because his answer is the same. One cup of cold water, one widow's mite, five loaves of bread, and the answer Jesus gives is, let's see. The simplicity of, let's see what would happen. The story in uh, 1 Kings 17 is the story in which Elijah eats, uh, shares a meal, I suppose, or eats the last of their food, and the little boy is famished and expires. He dies. And the woman is so upset, and so he takes the little boy and he carries the little dead body of this boy who has died of no telling what. Malnourishment may have been a part of it, and he, he acts as the instrument of God to heal this little boy. Don't be so worried. Well, that's easy for you to say, you might be thinking, but have no fear is not just a line from the Bible, and it's all over the New Testament, by the way. This is, this is Jesus' code language. When he walked into the uh, upstairs room and it was all locked and somehow he just appeared, uh, the mystery of that that the gospel writer tells us about, what he, what he says to them is in, instructional. Don't worry so much. Have no fear. This is his typical post-resurrection greeting. It's okay. I'm here, have no fear. It's a line that keeps surfacing in the Bible in the most stressful instances. Over and over again, this line gets repeated. Don't be afraid. Remember on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, do not worry about what you shall eat or what you shall drink or about your body, what you shall wear. Then he gives this illustration. He offers his own illustration to his teaching when he says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. How does that happen? The God of the Bible holds a fondness for the poor, the downtrodden, the hungry, the widows and the orphans. We know that. Jesus seems to think that as well. I believe that God is present, ever-present, in all our struggles of life. God is present in the blessing and the curse that's ours to experience for all the good things and for all the many ways that we sing it out from day to day. God is present when we're unemployed. I have been unemployed. I suspect you have too. And can't find the path to the next job. The frustration of when will the sequence of events take place so that I might have a key conversation and actually get re-employed somewhere. Ever had that? The struggle of that? Of course you have. And the way in which we do an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. That's all I really wanted. God is present when our dearest relationships have died and turned to divorce or death, or separation, or, or a hundred other, other relational things. God is present when we are at our wit's end in knowing which way to turn that will lead us out of the weeds and toward a hopeful future. 
This starving woman gave what she had. Perhaps she was like the widow who gave her last two coins in the offering at the temple. Jesus and the boys were sitting there watching what was going on. Money was typically thrown into a big brass, looked like a tuba, you know, that would catch the coins and drop them down into a container. And Jesus and the boys are there and everything in the world is happening. And he takes notice of what she did. And it was an example of extravagant generosity. Even today, the scholars, there are scholars who study the habits of giving and the way in which people are prompted, they're motivated to find a source for giving. The scholars who do the study of this all seem to say the same thing, namely that it's the poor who are more likely to be generous. Not the rich, not the privileged, not the powerful. It's the poor who open up their hearts and their purses and they share what they have. The rich tend to tip poorly. I've never had a tipping job, but I know many of you have. And my son gave me almost daily accounts of the tipping. And Sunday at noon was not a great time to be working in food service. They give, the, the rich give something that costs them nothing. There's no effort to it. While the poor tend to dig deep and significantly and give sacrificially out of their substance. Generosity is a great example of grace given, grace received. And it's a lesson we can take away from this story. Hunger gave way to grief and the power of the story was extended to the gift itself and as the widow learned her boy had died. And here the cycle of grace comes full circle. She was the one who offered up what God asked her to do. She had given grace away through her generosity over generosity. She didn't cull out a piece of it to save for later, for herself and for the needs of her son. And now grace was being offered to her in return. That's how it works. If you want to think about it as a cycle, that's great. Grace given, grace received. We could come to terms with the fact that whether it's poverty or hunger or illness or death itself, the great God stands with us and wants to accept the gift of life as a precious gift of grace. We're to take our gift of life and share it as we live and breathe and have our being, as the Bible would say. Grace given, grace received, all the way across the arc of life. Amen.